Let's go to the Lord once more in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we come before your word, we pray, O Lord, that you would be glorified in the preaching of your word and that you would give us your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would shape my words to be the words that you would speak to your people. We pray by your spirit they would be applied to our hearts. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. As you might imagine, in our staff meeting Tuesday morning, we were talking about this whole uh, dynamic of, so you're going to be, you know, you're going to be on the floor. You're not going to be on, on the platform. So people ask me, am I going to take free reign or free license just to wander out into the congregation and <laughs> maybe pat some of you on the shoulder or, or, or whatnot? I don't have plans on that. But if you, if you have a habit of dozing off in the service, I, I suggest you stay alert. You might find me right, right beside you. Um, the title of this sermon is Children of God Destined uh, for Glory. And I took that from Martin Lloyd-Jones' famous sermon series. Many of you have read that on 1 John. And I figure you can't, you can't go wrong with Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, because the title of this, it beautifully captures our scripture this morning so well. Just a little bit of context. If, if you're visiting with us, we're going through... A, a series of First John, and in First John, he's getting at the core of the gospel. It's all about the core truth of the gospel, who Jesus is, and what he came to do, and who we are, who you and I are in light of who he is and what he came to do. And John gives his readers some, some markers some markers, both theological and practical, to discern a truth from error, to discern genuine Christianity from a false profession of Christianity. And he's doing that by going into the core truth of the gospel and the core truth of Christian practice. And it's relevant to us because he's addressing pastoral concerns, concerns of, of our assurance of our confidence, and our hope in the life of faith. And so this morning's passage, is, it's related to all of those things. And so with that in mind, I'll give you uh, the outline. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look, number one, at what it means to abide in Christ. What it means to abide in Christ. And then we'll look at our identity as children of God. And then our destiny as believers. What it means to abide in Christ, that's related to our confidence and our clarity. Our identity as children of God, it's related to our assurance. And then, of course, our destiny is related to our hope and our joy in Christ. And so with that, let's pick up 1 John chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, beginning also in the beginning part of chapter 3. Hear the word of the Lord. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him at his coming. You know that he is righteous. You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. 
The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Amen. John gives his readers a simple recognition and a simple admonition. The simple recognition is he calls them little children. And you've heard us talk about that throughout this series. He, he uses that over and over again. We'll come back to that in the second point. But he gives them a simple admonition as well. Abide in him. Abide in him. John has told his readers that they are surrounded by many antichrists. Many people who would deny Jesus either by denying his humanity or denying his divinity or people who would deny Jesus by not living out of his commands. And so the church is in this this context of being surrounded by people who are the one hand, they're twisting the truth, but they're also denying the truth as well. And in that context, John's pastoral advice is simple. He says, abide in him. And so the first point I want to talk about is what it means to abide in Christ. And then I want to give you two results of abiding in him. In short, abiding in Christ is about two things. It's about faith and it's about practice. It's about faith and practice. But let's talk about faith first. And let's be honest. We don't really use this word abide very much uh, today, do we? You know, if I were to ask you, what did you do yesterday? And you say, well, uh, Derek, I was abiding at my neighbor's house. Or I was abiding at the community pool. Or I was abiding at the beach last week. We think that's, that's a little bit strange. And I've always thought about it as I read that word. It's not very familiar to us. But Jesus emphasizes this word. And John emphasizes this word. It must carry some great significance for the Christian life then. This word abide. In Greek, this, this word means to remain. And so it's John's admonition to them, essentially saying, don't move. Stay in one place. Just stay there. Michelle and I were able to go to the Masters a few months ago, and that was such a highlight, a great experience. And if you've ever been there, you know, as you look around Augusta National, just how immaculate and how beautiful it is. It's just mesmerizing. You just look at that golf course, and just aside from even watching the golf, you could just walk around and stare at the grounds all day long. And we did a lot of that. I told people that we walked six miles that day from hole to hole. If you've been to the Masters, you know, it's like the Garden of Eden, basically. Close to it. And like the Garden of Eden, there is one rule at the Masters. There's one rule. And that rule is, thou shalt not bring your cell phone onto the grounds. They are serious about that rule. And so that was emphasized to us, and and we left our our phones in the car. just kind of walking around, look, do they have surveillance cameras or secret police or something? Just watching for people with their cell phones. Just a word, don't do it. Don't do it. P. 
People who dare to do that are like people who dare to go to the Bermuda Triangle. They just disappear and then you never hear from them again. Now, obviously, you think about going, going without your phone for just an hour is difficult, but we're talking about going, going without our phones for a day. And it was great. It was wonderful. I recommend it. There's one difficulty that we did not anticipate. And I bet you haven't thought about this. And that is how easily you can lose touch with one another when you're in a crowd like that. We take for granted, you lose touch and you're going you're gonna to call each other on your cell phone. And so what we found is that we were always saying, you know, you just kind of stop and you say, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to duck into this little golf store and I'm going to pay $200 for a golf shirt, okay? And, and, and you, you stay right here at this tree, this oak tree. I mean, don't move. I mean, people are just going everywhere. Just stay right there. And when I come back, I'll be back with my $200 golf shirt and, and we'll all be happy and, and we'll be back together again. We're constantly saying, remain where you are. And John says, don't move. He says, don't move. Do not depart from what you have received. He says, don't go, don't go wandering around looking for some ultimate truth somewhere else. Don't go wandering around looking for some ultimate meaning somewhere else or some value somewhere else. No, he says, remain where you are. John pulls no punches about what the church is facing. In fact, we could say it this way. There's going to be challenges to your faith. There's going to be many antichrists. They might seem like the antichrist. We picture someone with horns or whatnot. No, no. There will be many people, many ideas, Christ-denying things. Many who deny Christ in our world today. John knows that. It's going to be a challenge. And there's also going to be a temptation, as Zach said last week, to take the things of this world and, and look to them and to make, make those things, to love them, to make them ultimate in our lives. But John says, but listen, hold fast to what you have heard. Verse 24, chapter 2, just backing up. He says, let what you have heard from the beginning remain in you. And what have they heard from the beginning? The simple, profound gospel. The simple, profound gospel that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh to save sinners. That he was sent by the Father. That he is their advocate. John is emphasizing these things. He's emphasizing them over and over and over again. And here's what he's saying. Abide in these things. Don't just hear them and just let them wash over your soul and out of your soul. Abide in them. Don't move on. Stop right there. Now, it's hard for us. It's hard for us to abide anywhere because we live in such a frantic and restless society. We're always on the move. But one of the applications could be slow down, Christian. Slow down. So many times we're like jet skis just skimming across the waters of truth when really we should be like submarines diving deep and dwelling deep in the waters of truth. And that's the scriptural admonition as Paul would say, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. That would be another way of saying it. 
He's saying, talk about it, sing about it, make much of it. Let it be front and center in your life. Abide in Christ by remaining in his word. And that's why things like weekly worship is so important. What we do every week, the preaching of the word, praying, singing, the creeds. What are we doing there? We're affirming the faith, right? We're confessing the faith. We're confirming the faith. We're affirming it with other believers. We're coming back to it over and over again. Even if you're wrestling with it, you keep coming back to it. Daily time in the word as well. What's the point of all those things? We're here this morning to, to do what? To praise God and that his word might dwell in us, that we might internalize it. And so abiding in Christ involves letting the word of Christ dwell richly in you. And the word of Christ is the gospel itself. It can become commonplace. We can look for other things. But John says, no, the answer is in front of you. The answer to the challenges of your life, to the trials of your life are in this, that Christ Jesus has come into this world to save sinners, that he is your advocate Come back to that over and over. Let it take root in your soul. Let it nurture your faith. And if I could just say this, here's what John knows. John knows they have no shot, no shot at resisting the world unless the word of Christ is abiding in them. And I would tell you the same thing. Unless the word of Christ is abiding in you, you have no shot. You will follow the world unless the word of Christ is abiding in you. So we abide in Christ by faith, but we also abide in Christ in our practice as well. It means obeying the word. John is speaking to an an unbroken kind of fellowship that comes by way of obedience to Christ. Look again at the beginning of chapter 5 and the latter half of of chapter 2 in the latter half of verse 5. He says, By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way. And Jesus says again in John 15, 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So we abide in him by the practice of obedience or keeping his commandments. Now, we should note that this is not talking about perfection. It's talking about faithfulness. Faithfulness. Marriage is a good example at this point. You know, I don't have to be perfect to remain in Michelle's love, thankfully. But I do need to be faithful. I need to value that relationship. I need to value that fellowship so much so that I keep promises, that I adhere to vows, that I practice fidelity. Similar with Christ, the idea is keeping his commands, practicing obedience. And so abiding in Christ involves faith and practice. They go together. But here's the glorious thing that I want you to see about this. You might think, okay, I've got to do this. This is kind of me pulling myself up by my own bootstraps. But the glorious thing is this. As we remain in him, he is at work in us. And what is he doing? 
As we remain in Christ, he's at work in us. And what is he doing? Matthew Kirk said it so well last Sunday night. He said this. Listen to this. He said, the work of the Holy Spirit is not to show us something new, but to take what we know and to make it real. There's a difference between knowing something intellectually and it becoming real to you. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's doing. So that we know by experience that his word, that his will, that his love begins to take up residence in us. It begins to form and it begins to shape us. And wonder of wonders I find that as I am abiding in him, he is abiding in me. And that's the fellowship that John is talking about. So what happens when we abide? There's two effects from this passage One, we grow in confidence, and two, we grow in clarity. He says, abide in Christ. Why? So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him at his coming. The word for appearing is perusia. It's this usual expression for a a returning king. So in ancient times, a king would leave the city, he might be gone for a while, and the people would be preparing for his return. And so it's the picture of the second coming, Christ the King. He's ascended. He's coming back. We're preparing for his return. And John says there will be two kinds of people at his coming. There will be those who are confident, waiting for him. And then there will be those who, who shrink back. Two kinds of people. If you're a father, you might recall and have fond memories if you have older kids that you might recall uh, coming home from work every day. You remember that, how much of, of, of an event that was? You walk in the door and it's, whoa, daddy's home. And it's just a big party and there's, there's drawings and there's gifts. And look at what I've done today. And there's all these different things that are happening. And you're welcome. You're warmly welcomed. Why? Why are you warmly welcomed? Because you know them and they know you. Because you love them and they love you. There's, there's, there's relationship, there's, there's fellowship. Your presence has actually been missed throughout the day. And there's all these things that fuel the anticipation of your re- arrival throughout the day. That's similar to the Christian, the one who's abiding in Christ, waiting for him. Now, when your kids get older, you don't walk into drawings and gifts and exclamation. You walk into dirty dishes. You know, there, there they are in the sink for you. And juxtapose that with a stranger pulling into your driveway. What do you do when a stranger pulls into your driveway? Who is that? And why, why, are, why are they here? What are they doing here? What do they want from me? They're, 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 not, they're, they're, not, they're not welcome here. You think of door-to-door salesmen. You can see them coming down the road. What do you all do? you bomb it in the house and you lock down, you die behind the sofas, you scramble, you turn the lights out. A couple weeks ago, I was out working in the front yard and I saw them. I saw two guys up the road. It doesn't take much to know what you're, oh boy, they're selling something. They're going door to door. And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't, the dread of the moment of them coming up in the yard, I just went ahead and got it over. I just walked down there to them and just told them no right there. That wasn't very nice. If you go door-to-door sales, you got a hard job. More power to you. 
But we're hiding, we're scrambling. Strangers are not welcome, and at times, strangers can even be feared because we do not know them. So it begs the question, what will God's appearing be like for you? What will it be like for you? Will it be like a familiar father appearing, or will it be like seeing a terrible stranger? Will we welcome him back in the driveway, as it were? Or will we shrink back because we've lived a life estranged from God? Listen, either by rebellion or just through indifference to him. What will it be like for you? And we should note here this confidence that John is talking about. It's not a boastful confidence, like I've done enough good works, I've checked the box, I've done all those things. No, it's the kind of confidence that comes from intimacy and closeness with God. So we see closeness breeds confidence, and that comes through abiding in him. When we abide in him, we also grow in clarity as well. With regard to ourselves and with regards to others, How do we know who's been born of him? He says in verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So what is the identity marker of someone who's been born of God? It's the practice of righteousness. And so if that's true, we need to ask, what does John mean by practicing righteousness? Well, once again, we know he doesn't mean perfection. He's already said, if we say we have no sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. So he's not talking about sinless people. Well, if practicing righteousness doesn't mean perfection, what does it mean? And I think a good way to look at it is to think about the word dominion. Dominion. Dominion has to do with what controls us. What controls our motives, our thoughts, our life, our action. What dominates our hearts. That's what he's getting at. What is in control? Is it the things of the world or is it the things of God? What's in control of our lives? By righteousness, John does not mean just a a general moral impulse. You know, I just, I kind of want to do good and do right things. I want to be good to my neighbor. I mean, that's fine. But ultimately, John is connecting righteousness to the character of Christ himself. He says earlier in chapter 2, he says everyone who keeps his commands is born of him. And he goes on to highlight the new command that he gives, which is the same command that Christ gave the disciples that they love one another. And so he's connecting righteousness to the character of Christ. And so it means, among other things, the practice of loving, not hating our brothers. As John says elsewhere in chapter 4, everyone who loves has been born of him. So what is this about, this practicing righteousness? It's about the love of Christ coming to have dominion in our hearts. The love of Christ being resident in our hearts and growing over time and taking control. You might think of Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Those are Christ-like characteristics. Or the fruit of the Spirit, ultimately Christ-like characteristics. These things, that's righteousness growing in our lives. They bring great clarity about ourselves and about others. And ultimately, I know who's been born of God but I, because I see Christ-like character 
being formed in them. So abiding in Christ brings confidence and brings clarity. Then it brings us to our next point. We grow in assurance as we realize our identity as God's children. Look at what he says at the beginning of chapter 3. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. John wants his readers to know the Father's love. He says, see. Other translations say, behold, or to perceive the Father's love. Now think about someone really wanting you to see something. Think about the moon at night when it just illumines the sky. And someone says, come here, come here, you gotta see, you gotta see the moon. Well, I've seen the moon. No, 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 you haven't seen it like this before. It's such a clear night. Have you seen the news stories about the color of the water off the coast of South Carolina this summer? If you haven't seen it, Google it. The waters off the coast of South Carolina is beautiful, clear, tropical blue. It's striking. It's amazing. We were in Myrtle Beach a few weeks ago. Michelle said, look at the ocean. Well, I've seen the ocean. But no, no, you haven't seen it like this. It's a striking clear blue. And I read that the ocean has been unusually calm this year, and so the sediment from the ocean floor is not being kicked up and making the waters murky. And what's remarkable to me as I read that article is it said the color you see now is actually the true color of the water. You believe that? Who would have thought it? Dirty Myrtle Beach is like the Caribbean. We've all been wasting thousands of dollars going to all-inclusives. You just drive three three hours down the road. There you are, sitting in tropical paradise, Myrtle Beach. What's happened? We see the water for what it really is. Friends, similarly, the sinful sediment of our hearts, the the sinful sediment of the world can be kicked up and it can cloud our vision of the Father's love so that we don't see it for what it really is. And John wants us to see. He wants us to see, not just look, but marvel. So let me give you three things about God's love to marvel at. Three things. Number one, God's love is unique. God's love is unique. Some translations say how great the Father's love for us. Actually, the language denotes something that's, that's foreign, that's, that, that, that's alien, that's, that's otherworldly. Like, where did this come from? What is it? It's unlike any other love. Now, those of you who are married, you know, maybe you had relationships before you met your spouse, and then you meet your spouse, and, and what do you do? All of a sudden you say, well, I, I've never known love like this before. I thought I knew what love was. Not until I met her, not until I met him. Now I really know what love is. Or think about when you have a child. In that experience of love for that child, you think, have I ever really known what it is to love someone like I love my child? And friends, the message is the highest human love is but a poor reflection of God's love. God's love is the highest form of love. It's not fickle. It's not conditional. 
is not tainted with sin. It's pure. It's compassionate. It's faithful. It's kind. It's patient. It's infinite. It's inexhaustible. It's unlike any other love that we know. God's love is the source of all true love and the very definition of love. And that's what John says in chapter 4. God's love is unique. Number two, God's love is given. John says, see what manner of love the Father has given to us. Other translations say that he has bestowed it upon us, or to borrow the language of Ephesians, that he's lavished on us in Christ. It's given. It's unmerited love. 1 John 4.10, and this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It is unearned. It is not a reward for good works. It is freely given to us in Christ. It is a gift. John says, marvel at that. The third thing to marvel at is God's love is transformative. God's love is transformative. He says, see what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Zach's sermon mentioned how many times love is all over this this letter of 1 John was the same thing. He keeps saying, little children, little children. He keeps repeating that over and over again. There must be something that John wants his readers to absorb, to soak in, to sink in. There must be something he wants them to internalize. And that is, in Christ, we have moved from children of wrath to children of God. He says, marvel at that. In love, the Father sent his Son to redeem us, to justify us, to adopt us as his children. And so you have this radical transformation of identity that has occurred. John 1.12 says, To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Everyone does not have this childlike status. It is to those who have received him. And so as we receive Christ, we are united to him by faith. We are justified. We are forgiven of our sins. And we are adopted as children of God. All because of the love of God. This adoption. In adoption, like justification, I must come to see. Here's a key to it, you absorbing this. I must come to see that he is the divine agent taking the decisive action. It is God. The glory of the gospel, friends, the glory of the gospel and the doctrine of adoption is this. It is not we who have made God our father It is he who has made us his sons and daughters. Do you see the difference? As one writer said, he has called us sons because by faith we are in the only begotten son. Now some of you know the joy of adopting a child. You know that joy. That child did not act to become your son and daughter. Rather, You, in great love, you acted to make them your child. And you know all the joy and love that comes from that. And some of you know what it's like to be the recipient of that love. If that's true of us, how much more is God's love in the act of adopting us to be his children, friends? The one who has given us his spirit, by whom we cry, Abba, 
Father. John wants his readers to soak this in. He doesn't want this truth to just fly over our heads to be some kind of abstract thing that we just sort of affirm. No. He wants them to soak it in. He wants them to marvel at the Father's love and making them children of God. And he even makes it more emphatic. He says, and that is what we are. It's almost as if he's saying to his readers, I'm not being hyperbolic. I'm being serious. This is reality. This is who we are. Now, how many of us live in that reality? This conscious awareness of this remarkable identity of being a child of God. Listen, you might, you might be rich, you might be poor, you might be tall, you might be short. You might buy your clothes at Brooks Brothers or get your clothes at Costco. You might think of yourself as beautiful, you might think of yourself not as beautiful. If you are in Christ, you have a greater identity than all of those things. You are a child of God. In terms of status, you might aspire to be a doctor, a lawyer, a great athlete, a president of an institution president of the country, whatever it is, the Christian message is this. You can be much more than that. Did you know that? You can be so much more than that. You can live as a son or daughter of God to have the peace and security and love that that status brings. Friends, and so the question is, do we believe this? Have we internalized this? When we really grasp this, it's transformative. Because it will change how you see God. Not merely as a judge who pardons our sins, though he's that, but he's not just that. But as a loving father who welcomes you, who seeks fellowship with you. And that will transform how you pray. That will transform how you see others. It will transform how you love. It will transform how you see yourselves. You will no longer live as an orphan searching for value and meaning and security in the things of this world, but you'll live as an adopted child of God who knows this otherworldly kind of love. But in closing, I know I've got to wrap up. He moves from our identity to our destiny. From our adoption to our glorification. Verse 2, he says, Beloved, we are are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. He first says, what we will be has not yet appeared. What does that mean? You ever look at the uh, temperament of a child? We've seen this with some older, say you have a five-year-old and you have a, have a new baby and there's an older brother or, or, or sister, older sibling, and they go and they kind of mother or father that child's just sweet demeanor. And as a parent, you think, man, I wonder what that's going to be like when they, when they grow up, when they mature. What's that going to be like? Or physically, you think of, uh, of an athlete. Coach might look at a young football player and say, wow, he, that guy is 6'5", 200 pounds. Can you imagine what he's going to be like when he fills out that frame? When he's 6'5", 260, do you know he's going to wreak havoc on the other team? What's he going to be when he grows into his body? What a day. What a day that will be. Similarly, right now, we are children of God, but one day, brothers and sisters, we will all be spiritually grown up. That doesn't mean we won't be his children anymore, 
But all the seeds of virtue that are in our lives and growing now will come into full flower and full maturity. And we will be like him. We won't be Jesus, but we will be our glory selves, our true selves without sin. And so that's one sense of being like him. But ultimately, I think this is a reference to Christ's glorified body and our glorified body. He says, you will be like him. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 3.21. says that Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our bodies, our bodies, your body that I'm looking at right now will one day be glorified. What will that be? How radiant. We don't fully know. It's going to be great uh, when I get my glorified body. Maybe I'll be able to see over the pulpit here at Christ's Covenant. Y'all can come watch that. It'll be nice. Look forward to that. But notice our focus is not on ourselves. What's our focus on? Rather, it is on seeing Jesus. He says, destiny, you and me, we will see him as he is. That's our destiny. Made me think of Tim Keller, who influenced so many. A few days before he died, his son tweeted this out and just struck me. You've probably heard this, but he says, in prayer, he, this is dad, Tim Keller, said two nights ago, I'm thankful for all the people who've prayed for me over the years. I'm thankful for my family that loves me. I'm thankful for the time that God has given me, but I'm ready to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus. I wonder if that's just a gift from God that he gives to believers. And maybe it doesn't happen for everyone in the exact same way, but as we get older in our life, that becomes, that eternal horizon begins to clear just a little bit for us. What a testimony of anticipation. And here's what I would say to you. God wants you and me to live with that eternal horizon in view. He wants us to see the promise of that, that we will see Jesus. Not only have we been adopted, we will be glorified. We will be with him. We will be like him. We will see him. And John says, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. You remember what Jesus said in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will what? See God. That's the promise for the believer. And John knows these things will be sanctifying. He knows these things will be assuring. He knows these things, as we come to believe them and grow in them more and more, will be joyous. And so as we abide in Christ, we grow in clarity and confidence. And so the application for you and for me this morning is this, is remain in his word. As we realize our identity, we grow in assurance of God's love. The application for you and me this morning is that we marvel at his love. And as we look toward our destiny, 
Our joy is enlarged. Our hope is strengthened. And the application for you and for me is to fix our eyes on Jesus. For one day, brothers and sisters, we will see him as he is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these blessed promises. Lord, we ask that you would help us to believe them, to grow in them, to abide in them. And so we pray that you would do your work, take your word, make it fruitful in our lives, in our hearts. We ask in Christ's name, amen.